attention sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. It's exactly what we've been saying all along. We're glad that they finally caught up. It's sad, it's hurtful for the country that it's taken two years to get there. We have been saying all along that there was absolutely no collusion. Um, and I think it's time for everybody to be able to move on and move forward. Well, I'm not gonna be disappointed in the president. I'm disappointed in Congress. I mean, the president wants to keep the government open. If he uses this as a vehicle, so be it. Democrats control the House, Republicans control the Senate. Donald Trump is the president. This legislation is a product of trying to find common ground. The conference committee has done its job. It's forged a bipartisan agreement that would keep government open through September, as well as provide additional border security. We'll see what the final package looks like and the president will make a determination on whether or not he's going to sign it. But you can rest assured the president promised he was going to build the wall and he's going to deliver. And now, Stacey Washington. Okay, so, um, yeah, welcome back to the program. Thank you for being here today. Uh, we have another great guest for you this hour. We're going to be speaking to Jeffrey Katz. He has a really interesting perspective on why Ralph Northam should resign. And I know this is this is really not, like, we, we, we don't have a lot of people. I don't see a lot of people advocating for him to stay in place, but he's, dead-ending himself there. He's like entrenching himself. And uh, we have options, obviously, as people, we could continue to press for him to resign. And, you know, there's there's things that the Virginia legislature could do. But it's really the people who have to stand up and say that they're opposed to what he's doing. And I think the perspective that is being offered here by Jeffrey Katz is one that you'll find interesting. He's coming from a totally different side of things or, 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 you know, perspective. And he's written a book as well. So we'll, we'll talk to him uh, about that. We're also going to be delving into your calls. Call in, join us, 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. Um, I was looking at Facebook a little bit ago and it was showing me reminders of how last year I was at the White House reception for uh, Black History Month. And it turns out I was invited again this year. I, I think I might have said earlier this week that I wasn't. I'm blaming my overfull email box for me missing that. I get so many emails on the White House press list that it was in amongst those. And I hadn't had a chance to catch up on what they were doing at the White House. And I missed it. So uh, I saw the invitation. It looks like I'm going to trek out to Washington, D.C. And I'll get to see my mom and dad while I'm there. And go to the White House reception again and hopefully this time get to shake the hand of President Trump. Who knows? Who knows what will happen? Um, but we're also, obviously, we have to talk a little bit more about this Green New Deal. And I find it so disturbing that we're even having all of this chat about the Green New Deal. But we are. And we can't ignore it. We can't bury our heads in the sand. We have to deal with it. And so Mitch McConnell says he's going to get the Democrats on the record as to whether or not they support eliminating air travel, um, you know, eliminating our use, any use at all of fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera. He wants to get them on the record because a lot of them are running for Congress or for president. They're running for the presidency and they need to be, the American people need to know who they're voting for. So here he is. I thought it was pretty funny. He's, I always find him amusing. I know everybody says, uh, you know, he's Lord Vader. He's this, he's that. I get all that, but I find him amusing because of his demeanor when he's saying these things. It's almost as if he's laughing under his breath a little bit, which is kind of, it's interesting. Here he is, number one. 
Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I brought with me Chairman Shelby to uh, make a statement about the agreement that's been reached. Uh, let me say, first of all, however, I've noted with great interest the Green New Deal. And we're going to be voting on that in the Senate. We'll give everybody an opportunity to go on record and uh, see how they feel about the Green uh, New Deal. <laughs> he says, see how they, how they feel about the Green New Deal. <laughs> He's got a very dry sense of humor. <laughs> Did you did you get what he, maybe it's just me maybe I just hear things that aren't there but I think he was trolling a little bit right there so now I want you to I told you before get your hands at 10 and 2 on your steering wheel and be careful now I want you to not have any liquid in your mouth if you're drinking coffee or sipping your water bottle you might want to take a last gulp before you hear this next one it's Representative Liz Cheney, and she's got a group of people in front of her testifying on climate change. She starts to ask them some questions, and that's when it gets so funny. Here it is. It's number two. So let me ask you then. Do, are there, so let me ask you then. Do, are there any other witnesses on the panel who do support the Green New Deal? Nobody supports the Green New Deal on this panel. Interesting. I support many of the policies and recommendations in the Green New Deal. I see. Specifically, the support to make sure that any climate solution strategy is centered in equity. Thank you I very much, Ms. Carly. I appreciate that. Reclaiming my the... time, I, I would just say that I think uh, it's going to be crucially important for us yeah. to recognize and understand when we outlaw plane travel, we outlaw gasoline, we outlaw cars, I think actually probably the entire U.S. military because of the Green New Deal, uh, that we are able to explain to our constituents and to people all across this country what that really means. And even when it comes down to something like air travel, which the frequently asked questions say they want to eliminate within the next 10 years, uh, that means that the government is going to be telling people where they can fly to and where they can't. And I would assume, I guess that means our colleagues from California are going to be riding their bicycles back home to their constituents. Thank you very much. I yield back. <laughs> so, <laughs> if that wasn't enough for you, if you need the whole bowl of fun, so just... You'll find that I already posted on Facebook and I tweeted it out. Um, listen to the whole thing. So she goes through this thing with these these panelists where she asked them one by one if how they how they appeared at the committee. So did they fly? Did they drive? Whatever. Some of them drove. Some of them flew. Then she asked them if they oppose certain parts of the Green New Deal. And of course, they acted like they didn't know it. And one of them even said, I'm just not here to talk about the Green New Deal. I'm here to talk about climate change. But I support the premises of the Green New Deal. And then that's when she just lit into them. And I think it's fantastic when you get to put people on the record with what they believe. Because I find it really interesting. Like when you talk to a conservative or a Christian about an issue, like the pro-life issue, um, would you be okay with, you know, adoption? Would you be okay with the government subsidizing adoption if if there's less abortion and there are more babies born and people don't want them in there? Would you? Most Christians would say, "Yep, I'm I'm fine with that." Would you be okay with a check mark on your taxes where you could designate a certain amount to go to adoption funds to help people get through the process to make sure that kids don't sit so long in foster care? Yep, I would totally be for that. When you talk to Democrats about their policies, like. 
remember the video? Uh, I think it was Ami Horowitz who said he, he asked people um, when we talk about refugees coming into the country into large numbers, um, what if we could get a thousand or fifteen hundred refugees here in your town and we could get them here by, you know, the end of this month? Would you be happy with that? And the guy, so he's talking to this guy. It's a it, kind of a hipster kind of, you know, metro guy. Um, he's tall, kind of got the long, longish hair. He's got on, you know, what looked like expensive clothes and he's got a cup of to-go coffee in his hand and a laptop in a case. And he says, well, I think that as many refugees as want to come to America should be able to come here. And he said, oh, okay. Well, what if we could bring 1,500 here to your town, right here to this town, by the end of the month, we just bring them straight here. And he said, well, no, I don't know about that. And I mean, Horowitz said, why? What, why? Why don't you know about that? He said, well, that sounds like a lot. He said, but you just said we should have an unlimited number of refugees coming into the country. And he said, yeah, but I don't know if, if a number that big would work here. This is not a large place. That's what he said. He said, it's not actually a large place and it might overwhelm our resources. He said, so don't you think about that for the rest of the country? And the guy actually said, you know, maybe you've got a point. And then he kind of just turned and walked away as if to say, like, I, this, this is getting a little too hairy for me. So I, I, I find it interesting that when you approach someone on the political left about doing something that the efficiency or the efficacy of doing something that they're advocating for, and then you bring it down to their level and say you want to do it in their town, their workplace, et cetera, et cetera, they're usually opposed to it. They're fine with it on the national level. Dump all the refugees, dump all the illegal aliens, anybody you want, just dump them in the country and, you know, it'll work itself out. But if you say we want to put them here in your community, then it becomes a problem. And it's the same thing that we heard callers were so astute and, and they framed it so perfectly and succinctly. We have the best callers. What happens, as Hogan Gidley asked, will Dems tell us into which congressional districts we should release the illegal aliens? That's where the rubber meets the road. And I don't think we should let that sentiment go. You got to take that sentiment to its natural conclusion and you have to ask Nancy Pelosi, Maxine Waters, who coincidentally, she doesn't live in her district. Maxine Waters lives in, an, in a mansion. She doesn't live in the district she represents, which has coincidentally also had negative repercussions from her being its re representative. It's not better than it was when she started. It's worse economically. Uh, how about any of them? It, and not just the ones who live in California where it's a sanctuary state and they probably already have some illegals there. No, I'm talking about some of these people who live in these districts that these are nice districts. These are areas that are, you know, thriving middle class enclaves, some of them thriving upper class, upper middle class uh, enclaves. What would your constituents say if you decided, well, this is this is this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we show how dedicated we are to this concept. We're going to bring in illegal aliens and we're going to put them right here. What do you think happens at that point? For me, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be, you know, uh, the, the analogy for the Star Wars is those, the, these aren't the droids they're looking for. I bet you it wouldn't be the droids they were looking for. <laughs> you know, no, nobody wants the actual policies that they're advocating for for in America at large to come home to roost in their own neighborhood. And I don't want that to be the only reason why it's a bad idea, but it certainly is indicative of whether or not it truly is a good or bad idea. We see the same thing with liberals and school choice. 
they do not want school choice. They're all about, um, you know, kowtowing and putting tax dollars to, you know, quote unquote diversity. But when it comes to actual diversity and giving something up, they're just like everyone else, primarily interested in the betterment of their own family and making sure that they don't lose anything. That's a human instinct. Nobody gets blamed for wanting to take care of their family and wanting their kids to be in a AAA rated school or not wanting the makeup of your school to change radically when you paid so much money to buy a house or rent a place to be in that school district. But the Republicans put their money where their, the, you know, where their mouth is, he, school choice. That means kids can come into empty spaces and the changes to that school district, that's a part of the, the pie. It's giving kids access to a better education because a better education is a path away from the grammar school to prison pipeline. And it's a pathway away from the kind of negative outcomes that we see in so many communities where kids are literally, they're getting jumped into gangs and they're going in there selling drugs and doing all that stuff because they can't keep up in school. They can't read, they can't do math at grade level, and they know it. That's the worst of it, is that these kids know it. They know it even better than their parents. They know how far behind they are. They know how they're not keeping up with the class. And at the point where they decide, you know what, I just can't take this anymore. I can't keep going to school. I have no idea what's going on there. And I can't keep getting suspended and getting in trouble. I'm just going to stay home today. I'm just going to hang around over here. I'm just going to go down with you know this one or that one who says they have something for me to do and I can earn some money during the day. And then before you know it, they've been arrested a few times. And then before you know it, they've been to juvenile detention. And then before you know it, they're in real prison. And all of that could have been stopped by school choice, which the Democrats oppose and Republicans are for, which coincidentally means that the Democrats actually oppose black kids getting a better education. And the evil white racist Republicans are actually for it. Isn't that funny? Doesn't sound at all like what we're told. We're told that all of the evil white racist Republicans are the ones who are trying to keep black kids down and send them to prison. Yet the Republicans are the ones who are promoting school choice, not shutting down, um, not shutting down school choice in areas like President Obama did. He shut down the D.C. Opportunity Program the minute he was able to. And all those kids got tossed off instead of letting them continue to matriculate so they could change their lives and change the outcomes that were really down, right down the pipeline for them. When we get back, we're going to have Jeffrey Katz. Stay right there. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, our June tour of Washington, D.C. and Mount Vernon is almost full, and September will be full before long. So if you want to go with us on one of these spiritual heritage tours in June or September, please check out the information now at spiritualheritagetours.com. That's spiritualheritagetours.com. You know, one of the places we go is the Arlington National Cemetery. We usually do that on Friday morning, and that is just a majestic place. It's hallowed grounds for us as Americans. It's there we'll see the changing of the guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier. That's just one of the places we see on one of the days we're in Washington, D.C. If you want more information on the Spiritual Heritage Tours, 
go to spiritualheritagetours.com. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Nicholas Phillips recently wrote about what he called the sham of American centrism. He tried to explain why former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz would fail as a presidential candidate. While doing that, he cites a report from the Voter Study Group that helps explain the 2016 presidential election and may even predict the 2020 election. The study plotted a public opinion survey of 2016 electorate along an XY graph. The x-axis represents economic views. The y-axis represents social views. Voters who are social conservatives and economic conservatives are in the upper right-hand quadrant. Voters who are liberal on both social and economic issues are in the lower left quadrant. Howard Schultz, who is a social liberal but a fiscal conservative, would be in the lower right quadrant where a mere 3.8% of the electorate can be found. Those who voted for Donald Trump were in both the upper left and upper right quadrants. He appealed to both traditional conservatives and populists. By contrast, those who voted for Hillary Clinton cluster mostly in the lower left quadrant. These voters were very liberal both on social issues and economic issues. And I think this illustrates why so many of the announced Democratic presidential candidates are promoting very liberal ideas. Those who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 are uniformly liberal on social and economic issues, often to the extreme. They will be the ones who will select the next Democratic presidential candidates in 2020. This voter study group graph might actually become quite useful in predicting both the Democratic presidential nominee and even the eventual winner of the 2020 presidential election. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Thank you for being with us. Welcome back to the show. It's now my pleasure to welcome Jeffrey Katz. He has written this book, fantastic book, The Secret Life, A Book of Wisdom, in which he directly ties Maimonides, oh geez, I'm messing up that name, the teachings to the issue of whether or not Ralph Northam should resign. Jeffrey, thanks for joining the show today. Pleasure to be here with you, Stacey. Thank you. Okay, so I'm butchering the name. How do I pronounce this name, which I should be able to, but I think I just tore it up. That's okay, Stacey. It's Maimonides. Maimonides, okay. Maimonides and your Maimonides. Okay, Maimonides. So how does that, so how do the teachings of Maimonides tie up to whether or not Ralph Northam, the governor of Virginia, who is really, he's had a really rough couple weeks, uh, should, should resign or not? Right. Well, Maimonides spoke to so many applicable things, one of which was the question of forgiveness, which is really the question that's posed with uh, what Ralph uh, Northam did and whether he should resign or not. So Maimonides taught um, briefly that on an interpersonal level, if someone did something wrong to you and asked for forgiveness, you should certainly be quick to forgive. But for someone like a public official who's a role model, um, the standard is a little bit different. And Maimonides taught that one does not have, that has not earned full forgiveness or cannot have full redemption until he's actually facing back in the situation, the identical situation he was in when he committed his uh, mistake or sin, if you will, and he ch- 
chooses another direction at that point. So, hmm. translated into what uh, Northam did, basically, you'd have to look at what he's done since those decades ago when he had these blackface incidents, and you'd have to ask the question, has he soothed race relations? Has he promoted the African-American cause? And has he tried to make, uh, you know, the lot of African-Americans uh, better in this country? And looking at the last election that he was in, where he ran, you know, these ads, if you recall, Stacey, where he really so opportunistically used race, uh, accusing, basically running these ads, which painted uh, supporters of his opponent as vicious racists. So he really showed himself as someone not very interested in promoting uh, racial relations, but really just opportunistically using them for personal advantage. So he basically failed the test, you know, and should resign by that standard of Maimonides. So Maimonides put forward, it's kind of like it's it's basically a series of steps. And when you when you're in the op- you have the opportunity to kind of make the same choice again, a changed person, a person who's said, hey, I'm sorry, but and they really mean it, they would choose differently than they did originally. And that that's actually kind of commonsensical. A person who continues to make the same transgression over and over and over again and apologize is probably not really apologetic. They're just lying and trying to deceive you. But with Ralph Northam, the issue that he has where he doesn't feel like he needs to resign and he's repetitively had these these issues also points to him not being the kind of person with enough introspection to be able to actually make the decision that needs to be made, which is that he should step down. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right, Stacey. Um, Maimonides, um, you know, just um, to give your listeners a little bit of background, one of the greatest minds of the past thousand years, he was a religious thinker, a rabbi, a philosopher, of the leading physician in Egypt of his time. He was the court uh, doctor to the Sultan Saladin in Egypt. He was an astronomer. He was really a Renaissance man, hundreds of years before the Renaissance. Hmm. And, um, you know, he's someone who, up to now, in order to study his ideas, which are really transformational, one would have to go to some academy or a university. What I did was I just, his ideas, Maimonides' ideas, touched me so profoundly, I thought it was important that they be accessible to everybody. So I basically wrote um, a book which very simply lays out his main ideas. It gives the secret of charity, the secret of justice, the secret of unconditional love, the secret of a higher calling, and the secret of resilience, and the benefits that accrue to one and really are life-changing for someone who follow, um, who follow that road. And again, like you said, Stacey, it's action that Maimonides is really concerned with. And he really shows us how, through actions, we can get beyond our daily routines and off the merry-go-round and really make our lives fun and meaningful journeys that are really worthwhile. Hmm. So, and in your blurb on the book, and I have it up on Amazon.com, it's The Secret Life by Jeffrey Katz. And in the blurb, you say... He's one of the wisest men of all times. It's the time of the Bible. He's the only man to be celebrated by the three major Western religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. His name is Maimonides, a philosopher, rabbi, physician, a religious thinker, and logician. Today, the sage uh, is considered among the greatest thinkers. And so you're talking about taking a philosophical view to problems that really 
it's not just Ralph Northam that has a problem here. Obviously, the attorney general under him has an issue with, you know, dressing up in, in ways that are now considered to be offensive by some in the mainstream media and, and politics. And then you also have the second in command there, the lieutenant uh, governor. He's got Justin Fairfax. He's he's got a couple of allegations of sexual impropriety against him. How would the same teachings apply to uh, Fairfax and the attorney general who are, are also experiencing these kind of they're they're all in a, a state of chaos. Right. Um, leaders, um, clearly um, leaders have a special responsibility and um, really need to step up to the plate and do what these leaders have done is really, um, you know, in many ways, the opposite of leadership. Um, not only um, by virtue of their past actions, but like you mentioned before, Stacey, the lack of um, introspection and kind of um, self-evaluation and so forth. And those are important ideas that um, Maimonides points us to. For example, you know, mu much of us in our society now, we're spending more and more of our day reacting just to all of the information that bombards us in every direction on every screen we pass competing for our attention. And most of that information is trivial stuff. So many of us are spending more and more of our days really just responding to and dealing with and managing this trivial stuff. Maimonides um, urges us to lead a secret life. You know, sometimes when you hear a secret life, it can conjure up something tawdry or maybe even illegal, but maybe mm. not all secret lives have a dark side. Maimonides implored us to lead a secret life of goodness, whereby we choose a um, our what Maimonides would call we develop and find our own individual perfections, our ultimate purpose, the game-changing goal in life, our own higher calling, if you will. And it's that that really transforms our lives. And then we do this in secret first. First, we build ourselves up as um, sovereign individuals who have a spirituality and a great integrity from within. And then, because it nourishes these good things that we do, that we keep to ourselves, nourish our souls from the inside out, then we share those with our family, and we um, develop relationships based on unconditional love, which is an amazing thing. And Maimonides was a great pioneer in the field of unconditional love and shows people how to develop those kind of unbreakable bonds with their children and grandchildren. And then once one has done that, one then goes out to the larger community and pursues his or her higher calling there. It's really an amazing formula for not only a, a secret life, if you will, but incredible secret benefits that accrue to the practitioner of it that, that are really um, transformational for people. So... How does this, because you, you did mention in, in the blurb for your book that he's been celebrated by Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. How does this practice of a secret life, um, of, of improving yourself and it's everything that you've described, how does that dovetail in with Christianity? I'm going to say, how does that dovetail in with Christianity? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, it's because um, aren't um, the... The religions, Christianity, doesn't Christianity really teach them, um, you know, um, like um, like other, um, like Judaism and Islam to some, to some extent, about um, making yourself the best person you can be.
me in terms of devoting yourself to God and also devoting yourself to worship and also devoting yourself to others. So, you know, Maimonides lived at a time when um, it was during the golden age of Islam when you had some um, important tolerant and moderate um, Muslim thinkers as well. That's why the three religions kind of came together at that time. But, you know, Maimonides um, looked for wisdom from whatever source it came. And he was attacked in his own time because he looked to Greek philosophy for some wisdom. And he said, look, I will look at truth no matter what source it comes from, unlike kind of the situation in Washington, D.C. today. So... It can it so what he's teaching doesn't stand in opposition to what Christians believe in the Bible is is I guess the central question that I'm I'm seeking to find out about. Oh, completely no. He is very consistent. As a matter of fact, um, Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica and in his major works took a lot of ideas and continued the work of Maimonides. Maimonides really was a foundational work for St. Thomas Aquinas. So the two really went, Maimonides and St. Thomas Aquinas really went hand in hand, because Maimonides basically took the wisdom of the West and wisdom of Greece, if you will, and synthesized it with Judaism as a religion, and then St. Thomas Aquinas did a similar thing with Christianity. So the two works are very much consistent with each other, of course, except for the differences between Judaism and Christianity, you know, um, themselves. You know, they each had to deal with those unique aspects of it. Hmm. Fantastic. Well, I, I found the, the information that you sent out about, uh, and it gives additional reasonings and additional ways to think about how Ralph Northam and the others who are experiencing similar circumstances to him, how they can actually... Um, it's like a, it's a way of looking at yourself and saying, look, I've done something that's wrong, but have I done this just this one time or is this repetitive with me? Am I, am I sincerely apologizing or, or not? And I, I don't know that Ralph Northam actually has the ability to look at himself that way or to ask questions like this of himself, but it is instructive for people who are thinking, you know, on, on any situation, I've, I've done something wrong or I'm, people are saying I've done something wrong. Have I done this in the past? In the past, when I've apologized, have I turned away from this behavior? It's an interesting line of thought um, that, that you're presenting. And it sounds like it definitely takes more thinking and more uh, it's just stepping away from the, the situation and actually saying, you know, pause here, forget about what the ramifications are for me politically. What does this mean for me that I've done this? And I don't think any politicians are engaging in that. Right, right. And um you know, uh, Maimonides, like I said before, um, Stacey, also is a great pioneer in the field of unconditional love, and those principles also can be combined with those of the higher calling and charity and the express introspection and forgiveness that we were talking about, um, and really um, people with their significant others, especially in light of Valentine's Day, I really would urge people to read the book with their significant others. I think they will find it will be incredibly uplifting to their relationship and will really elevate the tone of the love relationship that they have. You know, again, my book, The Secret Life, a book of wisdom. Jeffrey Katz, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for coming on to talk about your book, The Secret Life by Jeffrey Katz. And it's uh, the, the entire title is The Secret Life, a book of wisdom from the great teacher. And it was released January 22nd, 2019, so it's new. 
Uh, Jeffrey Katz is the author and guest today on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Stacey. All right. Talk to you again soon. Have a great week. Um, I, I thought that was an interesting um, premise, which he's, he's saying take a step back and think about the actions that you've taken. I know there's a lot more to the book than just that one particular uh, thing, but it's connected up to the story with Ralph Northam. And I, I just, I happen to believe after listening to Ralph Northam, Governor Northam's interview with Gail King, that he really doesn't think he's done anything wrong. He, he doesn't think that there's anything really wrong with the uh, blackface pictures or whatever from his yearbook, whatever, whatever all that was. And to me, that's like secondary to his statements about, you know, as a physician, giving a woman the opportunity to decide to kill a baby after the baby's already been born. And I know he wants to take what he said and kind of patch it up and, you know, make it uh, palatable. I didn't really say that or that's not exactly what I meant. I get that. That's behavior of, you know, psychopaths behave like that. They say one thing to you and then they gaslight you and say, well, you misunderstood what I meant. I don't think we did. I think we heard the audio and we heard him say that he would, uh, the baby would be born and made comfortable and kept warm on the table or something like that. And then, you know, the mom and the doctor would discuss whether or not the baby could get to live. That's not something we're misunderstanding. I think we're getting it pretty clear. So he's, uh, yeah, it's it's so, it's so distasteful, honestly. It's so utterly disgusting and distasteful and so goes against his Hippocratic oath and the things that he swore to uphold when he became a physician. I just, you know, again, it's often, when you think about it, it's often kind of stunning that people are just running around acting like this. And um, what are you going to do? What, what are you going to do? So we have been partnering up with India Partners this week. And I want to give you, oh, well, now 339. We're not going to have time to listen to Indy, any India Partners audio. But we will have time when we get back from this break. And we're also going to be talking about the collusion conspiracy uh, against the, with, the, with the Trump campaign and the Russians. Did they find anything? The Senate Intelligence Committee has come out with their report and they're saying no. I find it difficult to believe that the Senate Intelligence Committee would say there was no collusion and that Mueller would say that there was some. This is a precursor to the Mueller report coming out and vindicating the president. That's not Mueller, what Mueller's there to do, but that's what's going to happen because the president's innocent. So we'll talk about that when we get back. <laughs> Stay right there. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. America's unconstitutional practice of declaring babies born to citizens of foreign countries has become a magnet for lawbreakers. A group of so-called travel agents operating in California has been busted for advertising and selling Chinese women trips to the United States to give birth to their children so they can be American citizens. It's called birth tourism and 19 people have just been charged in three different schemes originating out of Southern California. In recently unsealed indictments, the Justice Department alleges the defendants coached Chinese customers on how to pass U.S. consulate interviews by claiming their stays would last no longer than two weeks and suggesting that they wear loose clothing to conceal their pregnancies. 
This is yet another example of how indecent our current immigration laws are to American taxpayers. These Chinese maternity tourists get citizenship, we get their unpaid medical bills. I'm Stacy Washington. Find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com. Family is an institution set forth by God. One man and one woman for life, with the outflow being children produced by that union. It's obvious to all that there is an attack on the family in our country, and especially on fathers. Whether it's the cycle of sin that persists in our families or the pressure from our government to exclude men from being intimately involved, the strategic battle is on for the souls of men. Join us in the battle to strengthen fatherhood. UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Oh, what, what's that song we used to sing? Um, oh, Amazing Grace was one of them where, where we sang, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. You know, they took the word wretch out. Many people took the word wretch out. They said, you know, don't say that. that. That's offensive. But without Jesus, you are a wretch. Don't miss Bishop E.W. Jackson and The Awakening. Weekday mornings at 9 Central on Urban Family Talk. It's Fox Wheels. Ford is the first automaker to work with Gravity Sketch, a 3D virtual reality tool that's already available in the UK that enables designers to create a vehicle's cabin around us in a more human-centric car, truck, or SUV design with a 360-degree view of a vehicle as it's being created. The best example I might give is if you are sitting in a chair and that chair is the driver's seat and you start sketching an interior, you're, you're literally designing from the customer's point of view. Though Ford design manager Michael Smith also says... We still sort of are going to operate on, on the percentiles to make sure that we're designing for the maximum number of, of people, right, or potential customers. Across five global Ford design studios, dozens of interior and exterior designers are now experimenting with Gravity Sketch for workflow feasibility and its potential, and perhaps easing future complaints in the legroom department. That's Fox Wheels. I'm Jeff Manasso. Fox News. You can download episodes of Stacy on the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. After two years and interviewing more than 200 witnesses, the Senate Intelligence Committee has not uncovered any direct evidence of a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia. That's according to sources on both the Republican and the Democratic side of the aisle, Hallie. And careful viewers and readers will note that Senator Richard Burr, the chairman of the Intelligence Committee who leads this probe, essentially said that in an interview with another network last week. But what I've been doing since then is checking with my sources on the Democratic side to understand the full context of his remarks, because that was essentially a partisan comment from from one side. But this is a bipartisan investigation. And what I found is that the Democrats don't dispute that characterization. Uh, Yeah, Uh, the Democrats don't dispute the characterization. In fact, major news organizations have reported on the Senate Intel Committee finding no, 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 no collusion. It's, I, I get it that, you know, you, people want what people want, what they want. They want to be able to say, hey, you know, the president's guilty. People want to be able to keep the conversation going because the Russia deal is um, super important. It's what they've been hoping would be used to oust the president. Now they'll go, you know, uh, they'll go real, real slow and they'll, they'll lay the groundwork for impeachment and they'll try to bring impeachment proceedings to drag down the president's approval rating. 
and that may or may not be effective. I just encourage people to remember that we're, we're required to judge and make our decisions based on what is true and factual. And we're, we're required to use as our sounding board, our meter is the word of God. So uh, anyway, here we are with uh, Democrats panicking over the possibility of them having to actually be on the record about this Green New Deal stuff. So the massive government takeover that we've been discussing on the show, also known as the Green New Deal, has prompted Mitch McConnell, we heard that audio a little bit ago, to bring this forward for a vote. Well, Democratic Senator Ed Markey, who jointly introduced the Green New Deal last week with Socialist Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, claimed that McConnell, (laughs) allowing a vote on the bill, was Republicans' way of secretly sabotaging it. Now, how does him saying everybody who is for it or against it, come on, come on down, let's vote, how's that a sabotage? It's a sabotage because they don't want to be on the record. They just like talking about nonsense. He said, don't let Mitch McConnell fool you. This is nothing but an attempt to sabotage the movement we're building. He wants to silence your voice so Republicans don't have to explain why they're climate change deniers. I'll tell you why Republicans are climate change deniers, because there's nothing to deny. Climate changes, global warming and global cooling are just wealth redistribution schemes. And that's it. That's all. I mean, that's all that's all they've got. They just want to take money from rich countries and give it to other countries that feel like they deserve it more. And the Democrats are fine with that because they've got ways around when you're in the ruling class, you don't have to worry about your money being taken. They're, they're enriching themselves in Congress and they're enriching themselves with these deals. It's the American people who lose out on the Paris Climate Accord. Trillions of dollars of American wealth and jobs being frittered away under a deal that only the most developed westernized nations would have to actually kowtow to. The worst polluters like China and Pakistan and Russia would be off the hook. So he says, Mitch McConnell wants this to be the end, but this is just the beginning. Markey continued, this isn't a new Republican trick. By rushing a vote on the Green New Deal resolution, Republicans want to avoid a true national debate and kill our efforts to organize. We're having the first national conversation on climate change in a decade. We can't let Republicans sabotage it. Why am I reading it in that kind of weird, almost drunken voice? Because that's, he tweeted it out, so we, we don't know what his voice sounds like, so I'm just giving him that voice. Also, that voice seems kind of appropriate for what he's proposing. So a lot of people, you know, kind of got to mocking him <laughs> because he was losing his mind. And one of those people is someone, uh, quite a serious person, actually, Brian Riedel. He's a Manhattan Institute senior fellow. And he says the cost of the Green New policies would be about $100 trillion. He says before getting into green policies, there is a call for single payer, $32 trillion. Jobs guaranteed. That's for the people who are unwilling to work. Just give them money from the government. Government means you, by the way. Whenever you hear me say the government, that's us. We pay for that. The jobs guarantee would cost $7 trillion. What looks like UBI for the poor, $5 trillion. Education, 
family leave, job training, retirement security, et cetera, $2 trillion. So $46 trillion before they even get to the green portion. So how do we pay for, according to Brian Rigel, he's asking the question, replacing 250 million gas vehicles, another $7 trillion, killing most of 200,000 aircraft, 200,000 airplanes would just be sitting around like dust, dust bunnies. What are you going to do with that? Replacing the military jets. What are the military jets going to run on? Let, let's, let's just go ahead and agree you can't run a F-16 on uh, solar power. You're not going to get wind, you know, windmills on it to run it. You need gasoline-powered engines. High-speed rail everywhere. Can you imagine the drama of... So you never have a quiet moment alone in the car. And, and that's something that I actually didn't even think about until this Green New Deal came out as something that the Democrats wanted to do. I was just sitting back and I was thinking, you know, how much of our lives do we spend in the car? When, when our kids were going to the Christian school that is, uh, you know, further away from where we live now, um, I spent a significant amount of time in the car. And at first, I was kind of just like, we got to get down there. We got to get back. We got, you know, that was the thing. But then I realized, well, first of all, I have the kids captive on the way down there. This is an opportunity. And so we started using it to discuss scripture. We would pray together. Um, sometimes I would ask them for some more details about something that was going on at school. And it became a real special time for us. And then on the way back, I would pop in, you know, I, I listened to Charles Krauthammer books on CD from the, li- from the library. And it was just so fascinating that I, I got to kind of count on that time because when I'd be at home, I, you know, there's cleaning, there's taking care of the dog. There's, you know, before I had this radio show Monday through Friday, it was more, you know, I had an hour, one hour. And so I would you know, do some show prep. And I did a lot of radio interviews. But when I was in the car, it was like none of that stuff could happen. I didn't usually do radio interviews in the car, very rarely. So I, it was like almost I had a little, a little cocoon of it's going to take me 20, maybe with traffic, 26 minutes to get back up here. Okay, you know, so I can listen to some more of this book on CD. I could make a phone call. I could, you know, reach out to my mom or my sister. Hey, how are you doing? You know, I haven't talked to you in a bit. What's going on with you? Um, or just silence. I remember there being many times where I'd be in the car and I would see the traffic start to pile up and, you know, you kind of just glance up a little bit. And I began to, and this, I'm not talking about spiritualism or anything, but I began, began to really see like off in the clouds, you know, you can see the different cloud formations and the shapes and it, it became a real, it was like a comfort because the sky is different every day. God shows us his love through his creation and the varied beauty of his creation. And I began to notice a lot of the scenery surrounding, you know, the highway from stuck in traffic. Sometimes I would turn the radio off, not have an audio book on and just have some quiet time in there. And so I know a lot of things go on in the car as a mom with other mom friends, the stories are never ending of the things that happen in the car, the, the moments where kids share, you know, the outbursts, the you know, angry moments, kids fighting over space on the second row, um, you know, the revelations that people share, the little victorious moments. I got an A on this. You know, they can't wait to tell you they get in the car. How much of all that, what I just described, happens on light rail? where you're on there with a bunch of strangers and you have to keep your kids quiet so they're not bothering anybody. So everybody just puts some earbuds in and 
looks at their screens and rides in silence. And of course, you're having to do this for your groceries too. Like if you're, if you're a minivan person, I'm not anymore, but I was for 15 years. My minivan was my transport mechanism for all of the toilet paper, the cleaning supplies, the bleach, the Tide Pods, everything, the paper towels. Back when the kids were wearing pull-ups and I had two in pull-ups and, you know, it was just all that stuff I had to carry. I would go to the grocery store and buy it. I'd go to Sam's Club and buy it and load my, my minivan up with it and then bring my minivan home and back it, you know, into the garage and unload it. I'd be doing all this during the day by myself. Um, no, no complaints. I'm just speaking about the logistics of momming in America today and all the supplies that we have to have. We're supposed to give up the ability to shop like that and only buy things online and have stuff delivered to the house so that we can have the privilege of riding with a bunch of strangers on light rail. And I, I want to be clear here. That's just part of the annoying stupidity that is the Green New Deal. He talks about the research and development, installing renewables everywhere upgrading and replacing 120 million buildings. One, one good thing that comes out of the Green New Deal is we get a whole bunch of facts we didn't know before. Like, did you know there were 120 million buildings in the United States? I didn't. I hadn't thought to ask or count or, or Google it. But apparently that's true. Replacing, did you know there were 250 million gas vehicles in this country? I didn't. That's new to me. Um, yeah, high-speed rail everywhere. So can, can you imagine, like right now, we only have high-speed rail in the urban areas, and sometimes you'll see an, a rail line go out into the suburbs, but the the rail lines never go out and branch off into enough areas to make it possible for you to catch light rail by walking from your residence to the rail station. That's true in Chicago and New York City, and you know urban metros like that. But in St. Louis... How far, look, you have to walk 30 miles in the morning to get to a, you know, a rail station. You'd have to walk eight miles in the morning or maybe ride your bike. Light rail in America as it stands today does not preclude having a car. You either have to catch a ride sharing system where, you're, you know, one person agrees to drive this week and then next week it's another person or one person drives for a month. Next month is another person. Everyone shares the costs and y'all ride to the metro. They also have ride sharing. I know a lot of government employees do it uh, that work in like they work far off from where they live. So they work in Maryland and it's a 55 minute trip each way. So they do a ride share where one person drives for the whole week and the next week the next person drives and everyone in the car shares the cost and they ride. And it's like five or six people and they commute together and they actually drive a little van that is given to them by their employer for this purpose. And that is something that people do. Like there's, there's a lot of things that people are doing that are innovative that save gas, reduce the number of cars on the road, and are you know, supplemented by their employer. But to eliminate 250 million gas vehicles, just think about the lack of convenience, only having public transportation, never being able to say at 9.30, let's just zip over to the movie theater. You got to take four light rail trains to get to the movie theater. Maybe the, maybe the liberals are telling us we won't be going to the movie theater anymore. We'll only be watching Netflix videos at home, and Netflix will be the only channel. Do you see how totalitarian the whole thing is? Um, replacing the military jets. Again, what universe do they think we're living in in which we would take our highly advanced you know, military and everything that 
it comprises it that's currently run on fossil fuels. And we would just scrap all of that just so we could just so we could be cool with the Democrats. Nobody wants this. Rydell, here's a quote from him. He says, I've been costing out legislative proposals for 18 years. This is what he does for a living. So I guess he's the guy, if you're at a party or an event with him, he's the guy where you're sitting there and you go, gee, Brian, I wonder how many, uh, like how many, how many bikes are in this country? And he'd be like, you know, 800 million. (laughs) He'd be the one to know. He'd be the one to tell you that. He's been doing this for 18 years and he says this stuff cannot even be costed out. It's basically incalculable. Climate change is an existential threat to humanity in our way of life. We've put forward our plan to save global humanity and Mitch McConnell is sabotaging it by putting it to a vote publish. And that was Stephen Miller mocking Ed Markey for his ridiculousness. Between Brian Rydell and Stephen Miller and others who have been mocking this whole thing, I think we see how implausible it is. But my question is, how do people like this who put forward ideas like this actually have odds in their favor for winning the presidency in 2020. It's as if the common sense of half of America has completely left, just vacated the space. And it's unbelievable. All right. As we close out the show, um, I want to give you the India Partners information one more time. Provide a day of safety for $7.08 for children living in India's red light districts. It's 877-616-2396, 877-616-2396, or head over to AFR.net where the clicking is easy and fast and you can get it done and get on about your afternoon. God bless you from the heartland citizens. Tomorrow's another day. Be with you then.